Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. International tensions are rising rapidly tonight after an extraordinary speech by Russia's leader. In a televised address, Russian President Vladimir Putin says Russia will recognize breakaway Ukrainian regions as independent states and then signed a decree doing so, sparking fresh fears of war. We'll get reaction to this big development amid reports just in that Russia is to send troops into breakaway regions. Also tonight, on the eve of a government decision on pandemic restrictions, what does living with COVID really look like? Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and questions for our panel on hashtag TonightVMTV. First tonight, the growing tensions in the east between Ukraine and Russia and the rising risk of war in Europe. Tonight, Russian President Vladimir Putin said Russia was recognizing breakaway republics in a serious escalation of the growing crisis. Well, a short time ago, I spoke to Euronews Europe correspondent Shona Murray about President Putin's historic speech. Yeah, it was a very long, meandering speech from Vladimir Putin, very angry. It gave his interpretation of history. He said things like uh, modern Ukraine was clearly created by the Soviet Union. He said it was madness uh, that former Soviet states were able to break away. Um, he talked about uh, Ukraine essentially engaging against Russia from a military perspective and said if Ukraine doesn't resist, it'll be responsible for the bloodshed that ensues. So extremely dark and extremely foreboding speech from Vladimir Putin today knowing that, of course, it's Russia that has 180,000 troops encircling Ukraine, blocked off the Black Sea, is engaging in uh, missile exercises and really threatening Ukraine, has been doing it for several weeks now. Um, it wasn't a declaration of war, it was a recognition of separatist states, proxy Russian states in Ukraine, but it was a violation of Ukraine's territorial integrity, certainly a breach of international law of the Minsk agreements. But obviously the question is, what next? Yeah, and that's the where to from here. This is the big one, isn't it, Shona? Like, what level of fear is there now um, that Putin's move to recognise the independence of these breakaway regions could set in motion uh, other actions now in the region? Well, that's right. I mean, you know, as Macron and others have said for the past few weeks, as long as there's dialogue with Putin, uh, there isn't war. Um, but it looks like those dialogue, dialogue channels, uh, those diplomatic channels, they're being cut off. Um, Putin did tell Macron and Chancellor Schultz of Germany today that he was what his intention was going to be. And what we'll see next, I mean, I think the next thing really is what, what happens in terms of the West. The US has already announced sanctions against those separatist areas. But the EU has said that it will engage now fully on sanctions. Um, Ireland, uh, Simon Coveney put out a statement saying Ireland would support that. The question is what kind of sanctions? Because, of course, 
there's a huge package of massive sanctions waiting to go for Putin if he invades Ukraine. But this is recognition rather than invasion per se. It's not necessarily a military strike. But is the EU going to preempt or recognize this as a as such an invasion in terms of the territorial integrity of Ukraine and then slap down massive sanctions in order to prevent Putin going any further? That's the key question. Um, EU member states ambassadors are meeting at half nine in Brussels to discuss this. The UK has already announced it will uh, slap down sanctions. And I think there will be a consensus amongst particularly Eastern European countries who are concerned about their um, borders. They'll be calling for really hard sanctions against Putin to prevent him uh, or for at least create, make him think again uh, if he wants to go further into Ukraine, because that seems to be what he wants to do. I mean, he really wants to recreate the Russian sphere of inf influence. He wants to ensure that Ukraine is not moving into the EU's orbit as a democratic country. OK, I have to ask you about uh, former Trade Commissioner Phil Hogan, who gave that interview to a French newspaper in which he said he hasn't ruled out certainly seeking compensation from the European Commission following his resignation over the Oireachtas Golf Society controversy. What's been the reaction to that in Europe today? Well, it's an interesting one because obviously it was Phil, Phil Hogan's interpretation of what happened. It's very critical of Ursula von der Leyen. He's essentially saying that he wasn't given due process because he, in his mind, has been vindicated by the court of law, which... Uh, as we know, in Galway said that uh, no laws were broken during Golfgate. Um, it doesn't mention in the newspaper that there were other sightings of Phil Hogan or that there were other layers to the situation and that it was undermining uh, the pandemic response by the European Union and also the Irish government. But essentially, his position is he didn't do anything wrong and he wasn't given due process. And he also makes the point that Ursula von der Leyen it placed too much value on the fact that the Irish government withdrew their support for Phil Hogan. And that was very controversial, the Irish government doing that in Brussels, because it chipped away and undermined the independence of the commission. Just because EU commissioners are sent by their governments, by appointed, they are independent and they're supposed to work for the commission. So Ursula von der Leyen taking on board uh, what Michal Martin and Leo Riker had said, that was something that she was criticised for. But the Commission spokesperson today said that that didn't inform her decision. She made her own decision around it. The other question is, if there is a further investigation, was Phil Hogan fired? Was he forced to resign or did he resign? Because, as he said in a statement, there was too much of a distraction taking place because of Golfgate. OK, Shona Murray joining us live from Europe tonight. Thank you for the update from there. And I'm joined now by Fianna Fáil TD, Jim O'Callaghan, Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly, Irish Examiner, political correspondent Aoife Moore and Sunday Independent journalist Donal Lynch. You're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, I'll come to you first, Aoife, because we have a statement tonight, don't we, from Simon Coveney on developments um, from Moscow. Uh, wh what's he saying? Yeah, I spoke to the, sp the Simon Coveney spokesperson just before we came on here and they sent a statement out, uh, quite a strong statement. He said that Ireland's support for Ukraine's uh, ter territorial integrity is unwavering. They also said that the Russian Federation deci decision to proceed with the with recognition of these states is a blatant violation of, U of Ukraine's territorial integrity. So a very strong statement from Simon Coveney this evening, but as soon as... I saw the breaking news there. I assumed Simon Coveney would have something out very quickly. They've been on top of this all week or the last few weeks. Yeah, and we do have some breaking news um, reaching us tonight that he's also, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin has signed a decree ordering troops into those separatist regions that he uh, decreed to be independent. Mm -hmm. um, a worrying escalation, um, Jim. And I suppose the question is, what is the response? Um, is it the way of, we know that the US have announced 
sanctions on those separatist regions. It's what Europe will do as well. Yeah, listen, it's a very worrying development. He's now trying to recognise provinces in eastern Ukraine as being independent entities. They're not. They're part of the Ukraine. What he's doing is a breach of international law. It's a breach of the Minsk agreements. And it's also a breach of Ukraine's territorial independence. It's also straight out of the playbook of dictators. It reminds me of what Hitler did in 1938 by ostensibly using the Sudeten Germans as a justification to go into Czechoslovakia. And I fear, and a lot of people fear, that this is just a prelude to President Putin getting a request from these puppet regimes in the eastern provinces who will then ask for support from Russian military uh, regiments mm. and that will justify him putting, or he thinks justify him putting Russian troops onto the ground in Ukraine. That has to be stood up to. You've got to stand up to bullies. Like, should sanctions have come sooner than this? Well, there's a lot of sanctions. Now. Like some people would say, you know, arguably Vladimir Putin has the upper hand here tonight. He got to sit down and make his historic uh, speech where he, you know, recounted sort of the glories of, of, of the USSR and all of that and really said that Ukraine was run and controlled by a public government um, and wasn't running its own country at all. Listen, those arguments remind me of arguments that used to be made about Ireland by Britain in the 19th century. The Irish aren't a nation at all. And that's what Russian are now saying about Ukraine. It's not really a nation. It was part of the Soviet regime. If you're a Ukrainian, if, you, if your family lived through the famines of 1931 and 32 that Stalin imposed on those people, you've got a serious problem about preventing Russians coming into your country. You want to protect your territorial independence. You want to protect your sovereignty. And the biggest fear I have is that, unfortunately, we're probably going to see uh, ground warfare between Ukraine and Russia in the eastern part of Ukraine in the coming months. That certainly will happen if Putin puts troops into those provinces. Uh, the question is, Louise, I suppose, how is this all of this Im impacting on us? Certainly the issue around sanctions could impact on, on energy prices. We're already seeing quite a squeeze here <coughs> and the fallout that that's going to have. I think first and foremost, you know, we, we need to speak um, across the political divide with one voice and we respect the uh, the integrity of the Ukrainian territory. I think that that needs to be said and said from the very outset. I think also, you know, we can't afford to waste any more time. So I think the sanctions need to be now. I don't think we need to wait for any escalation. I think the, the time now is for serious and hard hitting sanctions. And I think that that should be, and I, I'm pleased to see the, the statement coming from Minister Coveney and that he is going to back those sanctions. I think that's the route that the European Union are going to go down and I don't think now is the time for us to sit back. I think uh, you know it's very clear what the intention uh, of Vladimir Putin is at this stage and I think the response from the European Union should be one of really strong, really hard-hitting sanctions, not waiting for a further escalation but actually getting in and doing that now and doing it quickly and making sure that the message is received in Moscow loud and clear. Mm. Do you think, Donal, on this one that it's a question that this has been pretty much bubbling away, some would say here in the background you know, we, we have a lot going on, domestic politics and otherwise. Um, really, it's come to right to the forefront and tonight, I suppose, it, it, arguably a turning point in all of this. Well, yeah, it has been bubbling there for the last decade and, and as you say, right back to the 90s and, and the, the time of the USSR and it has come to a, to a head now. I suppose um, partly maybe Putin's, Putin was getting a mixed message from Washington in that Trump seemed to kind of support him, whereas all the way down the rest of the chain of command in the States, they were more aligned with the way Biden is behaving now. So he was getting mixed messages. Apparently, this is not a popular move in Russia. When they poll Russians, they say that, that um, nearly half of them don't want a war uh, in the Ukraine. Um, so it's a, big, it's a big gamble on his part, because um, in the face of, 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 of that sort of public feeling at home, 
he needs to he needs to win. And you know, he's used to waging proxy wars as well. He's used to sort of getting involved, having his nose in other wars. But this is something where it looks like he, he either wins or, or 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 he loses. And it's it's sort of up to America now to decide as well how much it wants to support NATO and how much it wants to wade in there. So both sides are having it put up to them by the situation and at the moment. And whether Ukraine looking for NATO involvement in their country, whether this would be, you know, a very inflammatory situation and making a bad situation worse. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's, you know, on the outside as well, we, we sort of say, well, it's a sovereign country and how can he do this? I mean, there is, Zelensky, the, the Ukrainian president, was... I mean, he was a performer on Russian TV. Russian is spoken in Kiev. It's a second language, basically, there. There, there is some truth to some of what he's saying mm -hmm. as well. You know, I suppose you, you only hear one, one, one uh, message in, in, in the West. Well, well that's true. Um, um, that's true on that. And we definitely will hear a different story, I suppose, tonight from, from Russia today into different outlets about how it is going down in Russia. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose it shows you as well, though, Claire, the reason why Ukraine wants to be a part of NATO because Putin probably wouldn't do the same in the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, which are now part of NATO. And it does seem to provide them with a protection from Russian aggression if they can get into NATO. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about um, Phil Hogan and what's happened there. And this interview that the former trade commissioner gave to the French newspaper Liberation, um, in which he wouldn't rule out the idea of demanding compensation for the damage um, that he said he suffered um, as a result of, of, of the loss of his job. If it was a story that you broke mm -hmm. in the examiner in August of 2020, mm -hmm. um, that meeting, that golf event uh, at in, in the hotel in Clifton, mm -hmm. um, Phil Hogan being among the casualties there, what do you make of this development in the story and the lines that he's given to the French newspaper? I was never being so sad that I couldn't speak French for starters this morning when, <laughs> when the story broke. Um, I'm not surprised. Um, we have seen in the very brief media that Phil Hogan has done in the time, I believe it was the Kilkenny people, he gave his first interview with, he sounded very bitter. He said, you know, he felt he'd been pushed out. He took great umbrage at Leo Varadkar and Michal Martins and Eamon Ryan's uh, intervention. And he obviously, you know, he apologised at the time after Golfgate, but it became very clear very quickly that he wasn't happy about how he'd been treated. So I'm not overly surprised. He did say, you know, he's found the losing his job very traumatising. He didn't feel like he'd get a fair hearing, which I thought was quite interesting because at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting last week, a similar thing happened where a number of senators said that they wanted to leave Ragger to make a statement on it because they didn't feel that their senators had gotten a, free, uh, a fair hearing. Mm -hmm. They felt that, you know, they didn't get to put up their arguments and they'd been pushed out almost immediately. So there is parallels here. I'm quite excited for the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party meeting this week um, when Leo Varadkar is back. But I, I do think it's quite interesting now that because uh, the court in Galway obviously dismissed the charges and said, you know, no laws had been broken. But I was very much, and maybe I was wrong at the time, but I was very much under the impression that Golfgate was such a big deal because it was like the public impression of us all being in it together with COVID-19. Yeah, this was the big one, really. It's sort of the law of the land versus the court of public opinion on this in, in what um, Phil Hogan and others did, Jim. Uh, do you think he has a, a case there when he's thinking of demanding compensation from the European Commission? 
Well, listen, the last two years have been a very difficult time for everyone in the country, and they've been a difficult time for politicians as well. And I can understand why Phil Hogan and others may feel that they were hard done by. So I, I'm slightly sympathetic to politicians, even though I'm a politician myself, and I don't think we should regard politicians as being a separate group. Listen, I haven't looked at uh, the nature of the claim. He may bring a claim that he was constructively dismissed. I don't know. It's a matter for him to decide. Every person's entitled to bring a claim if they want to. It's a matter for them. You're entitled to bring a claim. Any member of the public's entitled to bring a claim. But I would have thought he got some vindication from the decision of the Galway District Court. Like, there's no doubt as a result of that decision, but that the uh, event was lawful. Well, it didn't get him back in the job, though. No, it didn't. And I suppose, listen, un unfortunately, politics is different from other walks of life. And I've seen this, but I feel very sorry for Derek Kaleri. But I suppose if you go back to the events of August 2020, like there was a frenzy there. And I suppose I was one of the people at the time who was critical of the event, but I didn't think it was necessary for people to resign. I think sometimes we need a more proportionate response so you, to you, political You don't think he should have lost his job then? I think we were, taking away the personalities of it, I think it was a major... Uh, failure of our national interest to lose a trade commissioner, irrespective of who that person was. It's a huge position in Europe. And I thought at the time, and I still think now, that the country had a disservice done to it by us losing a trade commissioner. But listen, these things have happened I in mean, the past. I mean, we have to think about where we were at in the country, Jim. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, we were locked down into counties and yeah, we couldn't go places. I know, it's been a very and, tough year. And, and, I know. Yeah. Yeah, it was a really tough time. But all I'm saying to you is, I empathise with all the difficulties people have been through. But I think at the time, the country would have been better served had we retained the trade commissionership. People may disagree okay. with me. That's just my Eva, own view on it. Can I just come on there? Yeah, and I would say I'm kind of repeating the point that Shona already made. Uh, the whole lead-up to Phil Hogan losing his job was not really about the fact that he went to Clifton or he went to the event. It was the series of anomalies and stories that had come out in the time after about Phil and, Hogan. And, and Claire, also, I mean, didn't he say in his own resignation um, statement that he accepted that everything that you're referring to there had become a distraction? So I'm just a little confused. If he accepted that at that point, that it had been a distraction and that it is about perception, what, you know, has his position on, the, on all of that changed now at this point? Uh, and he, he resigned. Yeah, yeah. Now, he, now he says he denies, of course, that he breached COVID rules there, but interesting, Ursula von der Leyen saying that even though he obeyed the law, um, it does not resolve the way that his behaviour was perceived. And again, mm -hmm. the, the ever changing just well, perception, though, Claire, it, the fact is that at that time, it wasn't just one incident. It wasn't just one dinner. It wasn't just one hotel. There were there were a series of, <coughs> of incidents and a series of revelations. And you know there, there was an arrogance there. The you know people feeling that the the, the full picture had to be uh, essentially dragged out, uh, and that you know that that wasn't forthcoming. I mean that's something. Look at you talk to people, and they will tell you that's the arrogance of of uh, a series of parties who have been in government for far too long. There was that arrogance that was there, and that really, really, really. I mean, when you talk about phrases people, like constructive. It hurt yeah, people, sorry. you know, and he is perfectly entitled, as Jim says, perfectly entitled yeah. uh, to imagine he has a constructive dismissal case and if he wants to take it, perfectly entitled to take that. However, uh, I do think if we cast our minds back, uh, we can see there was an arrogance there that I think, uh, you know, that really rankled with people. And I Don't think know. what it, com it comes back to is whether yeah. you're sorry or you're not. And now it appears that even though he apologised, 
he's not sorry mm. because he doesn't think he did anything What about wrong? the issue though that he's taking with the Taoiseach and the Thornish and the Green Party leader Eamon Ryan coming over and the idea that that was crucial in Ursula von der Leyen's final decision and, and how she was going to decide how this was. Was this, were they overstepping well, the mark there? I mean, when we use phrases like constructive dismissal, he's a politician. Po political pressure was being, was being placed on him. And he fell on the sword of his, of his interview where he came across the wrong way, the changing story, all of those different things. I mean, I, I just think he's, he, he's been, as he said in his statement as well, a politician for a very, very long time. Um, he's had many different careers and you would expect maybe he'd be a bit more clear-minded and realistic about the consequences. All right, OK. Uh, uh, we're going to leave it there, but would you stand with Judge Mary Fahey when she said a lot of uh, very good people lost very good jobs, Jim? Listen, we have an administration of justice in this country. Judges decide or juries decide. In this instance, it was the district court. The judge decided the case. I agree with the decision of the court. And yeah, I do agree with what she said. OK, so he shouldn't have lost his job, Derek Cleary shouldn't Sorry, have lost I, his I, job. Can I just say, Chet, I think we need a penalty below mandatory resignation or getting rid of politicians sure, all the time. isn't this politics? I mean, you're, you're well, elected sorry, it in. And it doesn't then... appear to apply in every other walk Fair. of life. People don't get executed immediately in other walks of life when they engaige in any form of misdemeanor or wrongdoing. Think, Claire, it, it was to his credit. People lose their jobs. It's not execution. People lose their jobs. Not it's not execution. Jim, and you know it is. To use that phrase, it's not an execution. The man resigned from a very well-paid position. And it was to his credit that he did. Look at other jurisdictions. Look at Dominic Cummings, who hung on brazenly all that time disgusting everyone. I actually thought it was great when he I, resigned, I showed think, integrity. I think in life you can be Dara Cleary or you can be Phil Hogan and I think the Irish people would have a lot more respect for Dara Cleary because they seen that he did the right thing at the time. Mm -hmm. I suppose in the end uh, Phil Hogan still isn't uh, back in a job there um, on that one but look let's let's talk on about I suppose uh, the pressure all this and the coalition you mentioned it there the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party um, and, and pressure there with Jerry Buttimer and that looking for, you know, that's the reason why his whip was uh, mm -hmm. taken away. But just, we have one of your own party, Willie O'Dea, who came out now at the weekend saying he would like to rather quit Fianna Fáil than go into a coalition again. And he may run as an independent Dáil deputy. Uh, you can't be surprised by this, Jim. Well, listen, what I want to say, and thank you for mentioning Willie O'Dea, he's 40 years in Dáil Éireann last week, and I he just want to commend him. He he's is. He's fantastic... kept diaries now for, of everything, yeah, and he and may I, well I, be penning Yeah, I look forward to the publication memoir. of them. I said it would be very interesting. <laughs> but listen, he's had a fantastic political career. The reason he's been elected and re-elected by the people of Limerick is because he's such a hard-working parliamentary TD. And I just oh, want to commend him and things, congratulate though, him. great things, though, to say about Micheál Martin, Listen, the he? great thing about Willie O'Dea is he's outspoken and he says what he thinks and he says what he believes. Now, what I took out from the interview with Willie was the fact that he referred to things in the past about Fianna Fáil, namely that we stayed with confidence and supply too long and we probably should have gone for an election shortly after the local elections in 2019. Everyone in Fianna Fáil now agrees with that. It's Mill, the Taoiseach agrees with that as Does well. He? Yeah, there's a recognition oh. that Willie that. is correct. There's no, the, the recognition that. that confidence and supply stayed on too long amongst everyone. And Michal recognises this as well. Yeah, I think Michal, as an interview, has stated that. Yeah, he thought when looking back at it now, confidence and supply probably did go on part. too long. I didn't know that. I didn't know that he said he, that. He unilaterally. Sorry, sorry, just to get on that. He unilaterally. Am I wrong in this now? There was no great big committee meeting or anything. It, it, it was Michal himself that unilaterally extended it. That was that's my memory of no, it. No, I, I don't actually discuss meetings of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party, Louise. But listen, I just want to commend. We don't need to. We all read about <laughs> it. Yeah. Just on that now, he said he'd gladly support you in any sort of, you know, leadership oh. bid. Well, um, would I you take to, Willie under your wing? As, as I said to you, Willie's a man of fine judgment, so I must say I was very <laughs> flattered by his commendation of me. Okay, what did you think when he said that? <clears throat> I was, uh, listen, I was honoured and flattered. Okay, so you'll write it down. 
I, I, hope, on your side. I, I hope I'll be referred to in his diaries. Um, on this one, Aoife, are Fianna Fáil in a bit of a pickle here? Like, is, is, is what Willie's saying essentially true? They're going into this coalition with Fine Gael. Now they've got, you know, Sinn Féin on the other side doing mm -hmm. very well out of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're a bit hamstrung. And I think when it comes to the next election, what we're going to see is there's going to be a bit of a split in Fianna Fáil because there are going to be people within Fianna Fáil who see the pact with Fine Gael and another coalition government as the way to get back in the government. You know, people, they believe that if people trust this government, they'll vote for it again. And there might be some sort of pact that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil should run together, mm -hmm. but separately, uh, for another coalition government. But there will be the people, the Willie ODs of the world, who say, no, no, we're Fianna Fáil, this is the Republican Party, we should be standing on our own two feet and campaigning as Fianna Fáil and not saying that we're going to go on to more coalitions. But I think what we see in the polls consistently it's, they're not, no one is coming anywhere near Sinn Féin, so I think there's going to have to be serious discussions in the run of the next election within Fianna Fáil about what they plan to do when it comes to coalition. Because I, I think they, they, they may try to do that and, and put some, uh, some imaginary distance between them. But well, he really wanted, you to, wanted me all to be more like Conor McGregor now in tackling Sinn Féin. Indeed, um, and comparisons to Conor McGregor, I'd say, are probably par for the course at the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party meetings. Uh, I wouldn't want to be comparing myself or anyone in my family or my party to Conor McGregor, but good luck to them if that's what they do. But I think the fundamental choice people are going to have at the next election is more of the same, more right. of the lads, or change. And people okay. want change, and the only way to get it is to vote for it, Claire. And the all only right. way to get okay. it is to vote We're for gonna, Sinn Féin. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, you got all that in, I Louise. Um, my panel is staying with me next. More on the growing international crisis over Ukraine and the end of mask mandates. But are we rushing things? Stay with us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Back. Let's go back now to tonight's big story and that speech by Russian President Vladimir Putin recognising breakaway regions in Ukraine. Oli Barrett is live in London for us tonight with Western reaction. And Oli, um, what does the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson have to say about all these developments in Moscow? Well, Boris Johnson was speaking at a press conference in Downing Street at about the same time as Vladimir Putin uh, was giving his uh, address as well, his updates on the recognition of those breakaway regions of eastern Ukraine, those separatist uh, regions of Donetsk and Lugansk. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, says in his, said in Downing Street, this is a plainly in breach of international law. He called it a flagrant violation of the sovereignty and integrity of Ukraine. He called it a dark omen, a very dark 
Mark Sign. He was asked by journalists what he thought Vladimir Putin might be intending, what Vladimir Putin might be going to do next. Boris Johnson said, I don't know what's in his mind. I can't read it. There's still a chance he can row back from this. But since then, there have been signs that Vladimir Putin does not intend at all to row back from this. And we've had further updates from the British government. Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, confirming that there will be sanctions forthcoming from the UK uh, tomorrow. She says we'll be announcing new sanctions on Russia in response to their breach of international law. And the indication coming from London tonight is that these will be a package of sanctions targeted at Russia, but with the clear signal that if there were to be a further incursion into Ukrainian territory, that those sanctions could be ratcheted up yet further. Boris Johnson concluding his press conference in Downing Street this evening by saying he was off to speak to uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine to show the support of the United Kingdom for that country. Of course, that press conference in Downing Street uh, wasn't supposed to be about the situation on the Ukraine-Russian uh, border. It was, of course, about the lifting of all outstanding restrictions, um, living, the new living with COVID or, or living without it. That's right. So from Thursday, one of the main changes is that there will be no legal requirement to self-isolate, even if you do test positive for COVID. That will become guidance. And then a few weeks after that, actually, it will just become personal responsibility, individual choice about how people feel they should behave if they uh, don't feel well or if indeed they do test positive for COVID. And the testing part of this is crucial too. The free mass testing that Britons have become so used to is essentially going to end and free testing will only be available for some people in healthcare settings and those people who are symptomatic and considered to be vulnerable. Twice weekly testing for schools, uh, for children in schools and for teachers, that advice is going to be going as well. Effectively, all remaining restrictions are being removed from uh, the UK economy, with particular relevance to England here, because the devolved administrations can take a slightly different path. Boris Johnson says it's time to learn to live with the virus. He says it's not going away. He's effectively saying, if not now, then when the Labour Party say his plans are chaotic, they say it's a government in disarray. And Boris Johnson was accused several times in Parliament earlier of setting out this plan to please his own backbench MPs and try and shore up his own political position. Uh, the government would dispute that characterisation and says that the uh, prevalence of the virus, the high level of immunity in this country through infection and vaccination uh, mean that this is the right time to uh, move into the next phase. All right, there we leave it. Ollie Barrett in London, thank you for that. Well, Fianna Fáil TD, Jim O'Callaghan, Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly, Irish Examiner, political correspondent Aoife Moore and Sunday Independent journalist Donald Lynch are still here with me tonight. And let's talk about what's happening back home because um, Boris Johnson, of course, saying it's, it's all over really for them as far as they're concerned. Tomorrow we're going to have uh, the Cabinet essentially rubber stamping um, Neffet's recommendations. Uh, tell us more. The mask mandate obviously being the big line out of this that under law we will no longer have to wear masks from next week. Yeah, I think the biggest things that people will notice are is obviously the masks and the difference in testing. So the government leaders um, met today and basically said that, yep, and you know, we had the Taoiseach, Michal Martin said it last week anyway, but he said that they would be accepting the Neffet advice that from, uh, they'll have a full cabinet meeting tomorrow morning 
And then after that, it could be all done very quickly. And by the end of the month, uh, it'll all be advisory to wear a mask on things like public transport, trains, buses. Um, but schools, social distancing in schools, mask wearing in schools, the pod system, that's all going to go. Uh, healthcare settings, they still will have to wear masks. But even within testing, uh, testing now will be focused on people who are over 55, the medically vulnerable. If you are exposed to COVID-19 and, you, and you're vaccinated, you have no need to take a test, but you must isolate um, until your symptoms go away. Essentially, it's not dissimilar to what's actually happening in the UK because they are still supplying testing for the over 75s, I think, and, and those who are medically vulnerable. So for all our caution to date, this is really this is really essentially the end of it, isn't it? Yeah, when I read the letter from Dr. Tony Hulan, I was even surprised at kind of how kind of candid he was. You know, he said basically the emergency is over and we're moving into a transition phase. And then he himself, as the head of NEFIT, said it's time to pack up our stuff and, and go home. And I spoke to a cabinet minister in the aftermath and he actually said to me that they were quite pleased that Neffet themselves had decided to wrap up because they didn't want to be left with the decision yeah. to wrap up Neffet and then shoulder the blame when Louise's party come along and give off if something else were to happen. Well, that's very true. It took the heat out of that, didn't it, Jim? Yeah, he gave a very frank account. I read the letter that Aoife referred to. It's a very detailed letter. He says the emergency phase is over, but that the pandemic isn't over. But I suppose when it comes to things like mask mandates, he said that there was no longer a public health rationale justifying mandatory mask wearing. But of course, Claire, people can continue to wear masks if they want to. And even in the letter, he says that if children want to wear masks in schools, they should be permitted to wear masks in schools. If people in public want to wear masks, of course they can. And the only place where it's advisory, I suppose, is in public transport or in healthcare settings. But I think it's the right decision. I welcome the fact that the government are going to go with it tomorrow. Uh, it's been a really difficult two years. But listen, we're getting to a phase now where fortunately the numbers in hospital and in ICU are declining significantly, notwithstanding the fact that we've lifted so many of the restrictions. Yeah, what about the, what the World Health Organization had to say, warning about governments moving too quickly on this? Yeah, I listened to the, a woman being interviewed uh, today on uh, one of the radio stations from the World Health Organization. Like, they were very sort of on the one hand, on the other hand. It's very much dependent upon governments having to take, out, in, take into account the epidemiological situation in the country. And that's been done. If you look at Dr. Holland's letter, he refers to the status of the disease in the country, the instance of it, the prevalence of it. Obviously, it's still at quite a high level. I think it's at 1,048 per 100,000. But the impact it's having on individuals' health is not as significant as it was before. Yeah, we did still have those high numbers where we got, we got details of hospitalizations from you know, younger children, um, and they were sort of in the hundreds, over 500 uh, children hospitalized, I think, in this, in this latest wave, or when we got the latest uh, um, data on that. Louise, what's Sinn Féin's view on this? You very rigidly stuck with what Neffet um, have had to say. So I take it you're on uh, one page when it comes to the decision-making around all this and the lifting of mask mandates and essentially nearly all restrictions at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And following the, the public health advice, I think, is what, uh, is what we have done and, and what we've advocated. And I think that's, that's been important, that the, the public health advice has been at the forefront uh, and should continue to be at the forefront. The pandemic is not over. I welcome the easing of restrictions 
everybody, I think, uh, will welcome in some way, shape or form that restrictions are being eased. But there will be people who are going to be anxious. There will be people who are going to be nervous. And it's really important when the government spokespersons are delivering that message that they respect the fact that for some people they will still be concerned, they will still be worried and they may still choose to wear their mask. And I think we need to create more of an awareness and tolerance around that. This is not an, an, an either or us or them type situation. If people continue to do that, well then let them. The other thing, of course, we can't lose sight of the fact that our health service is still in really, really bad shape. We still have a health service that is creaking at the seams. And if we remember at the very start, we went into a severe lockdown because of, of fears that the health service would be overwhelmed. Would be, that would be hasn't, unable to that hasn't improved. And I think with the, there is the a case for still to be the very vigilant. The hospital numbers in this latest wave have shown that, you know, that they, they, didn't, they didn't sort of escalate as people may have feared. So that could, you know, lead in part to that decision making around all of this as well. Uh, Donald, a sense that this is a symbolic end of the road. Um, do you feel we're at the end of the road now? Or are you happy with all the Well, we deserve to be, my God, after everything <laughs> we've been through, whether we are or not. I mean, we've been promised, there have been so many false dawns <laughs> and I, we've been told we can winter somewhere if we, if we're, whatever <laughs> the metaphor is. Uh, Seamus Heaney. Seamus exactly, yeah. Uh, but, but uh, so yeah, I mean, now it appears like it finally is over and, um, as much as it can be and yeah. I think it's, it's just know, a euphoric kind of though, a... As much as it can be, I mean we're already hearing about other sort of variants and this variant, I'm not sure, of Omicron that is more like Delta and, and uh, you know, with, with maybe more severe side effects than we had with Omicron. Like is there that fear with people that even though we have made these calls before to lift restrictions and live your lives again and then, and then we're pulled back in? Well, there always is. I mean, the, the, fear, the fear has been the story of the pandemic. That's, that's what, you know, as, as much as there was an actual illness, there was fear was the sort of currency and the current that moved through the whole thing. And that's going to remain. There's going to be a residue of that for a long time to come. But I think slowly as people sort of see that life is going on and that people are not dying in the same numbers, I think people will kind of get their confidence back. Um just on this, do you think, Jim, it's sort of changed us culturally and how we approach illness, how we approach viruses? Like even the idea of wearing a mask seems so strange a couple of years ago. We saw it more in other countries. We didn't see it here. Mm. Now people have very much got used to these, you know, and, and others who, who are saying don't get rid of them say, you know, they're not restrictions, it's mitigation measures. Yeah, listen, I'm sure people will want to continue to wear masks, but I suppose the message I would take from the, this stage of the pandemic is Irish people were very compliant and obedient and they recognised that this was a serious threat and obviously we had all the concerns about was it too authoritarian, should we have had stronger measures or weaker but ultimately we came through it together. I think as a political system we came through it together as well. When you look over in the UK there's a lot of politics involved in the lifting of restrictions and the imposition of restrictions but it was a very difficult time, I've said this before, I think for younger people it was an extremely difficult time. I know we talk about older people but like when you're, when you're getting older you've lived some of the very most important parts of your life. Young people are going through important developmental stages and a lot of them missed out on that. Um, I suppose the, the question which does remain is around international travel and you still have to show you know, vaccine certs and, and various you know, PCR testing and all of that. Do you think that should go, Louise? We see that Australia's board, borders have opened massive news over there and great news as well for Irish people with family over there, um, some heartwarming scenes. But do you think that those uh, restrictions that are in place in international travel 
um, are fair now? I think that you know everything is going to have to be reviewed because, and we need to take a global perspective. On the one hand, we need to look at the fact that you know it's only half of the population of the globe that have been vaccinated. Do you know? So that I mean, we need to look seriously at how we can get vaccines to the rest. And you know, the, the Irish government have a really important role to play in terms of pushing for the trips waiver, which they're very lukewarm on. And I would like to see them take some action on that. So if we're going to think globally and open up the globe, that has to be on the basis of, of vaccinations. And the other thing, just to bring it back to, to local politics, if you if you don't mind you know we're coming out of this pandemic with no statutory sick pay scheme we went into it with no statutory sick pay scheme everybody realized midway through it Jenny Mac you know uh, sick pay is a really important instrument of public health and we are emerging out the other side of it and the government still have not introduced a statutory sick pay scheme as yet that's very regrettable and action does need okay. to be taken on that uh, as a matter of priority all right there we have to leave it next the cleanup after our triple winter storms stay with us Parts of the country are clearing up after Storm Franklin, the third named winter storm in just a week. I'm joined now by Alan O'Reilly of Carlo Weather. And Alan, this storm, um, the last of the three to come our way this week, appears to have been the one that you know, caught people maybe a little bit by surprise. The others were teed up. Franklin came our way and, and caused quite a bit of, of damage in places. Yes, certainly. I think Franklin was late, was named quite late. And unfortunately, the, the late weather models only really picked up on it, the intensity of it a couple of days beforehand. And I think maybe people had a little bit of weather warning fatigue, but Franklin certainly did last much longer than the other storms and the wind gusts were even higher. So 139 kilometres an hour at May's Head and some very high seas as well. A 28 metre wave recorded off the M4 by on the northwest. That's over. That's almost 92 feet of a wave. So it certainly was a very serious storm and the longevity of it, it lasted all through Sunday and then into Sunday night as well and only really slowly easing today. Uh, and the winter is not over. We're likely to get freezing um, conditions, sub-zero temperatures in the coming days. Is that right? Yes, it's going to stay very windy, but unfortunately with that wind as well, we're going to have some much colder air coming down from Wednesday, um, making for bitterly cold conditions and even a risk of some sleet and snow Wednesday night and Thursday, especially on higher ground and in the north and the west. But we could see some wintry conditions for a time, certainly on Thursday. And as I say, a biting wind chill and the wind really is going to be strong most days this week. So unfortunately, the wind is, is really persisting and even into the weekend, there's a risk of more strong winds again. And how unusual briefly is the three storms in the space of a week would you say Alan? Well we've never had three name storms in a week so that's certainly unusual but when we do get the jet stream coming towards us we can see a conveyor belt of storms but not normally as intense as this so it is very unusual to have three storms in such quick succession right. of such magnitude. Okay Alan thanks for the update there Alan Riley from Carlow Weather uh, thank you for that Finn Faulty DJ McCallaghan Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly Irish Examiner political correspondent Aoife Moore and Sunday Independent journalist Donald Lynch are still with me. Um, on this, the naming of storms, like as Alan said, it's unusual to have three named storms in one week. This coupled with the alert status means the, we're very well aware now of these weather changes. Um, we take it that that's a good idea. 
Yeah, it is. I think it's a good idea for people to be warned in advance of storms coming in the course. We had a fatality during the week. Billy Kinsler died working for Wexford County Council. I just want to extend my condolences to his family. But it's important that we're forewarned about storms. I suppose sometimes the more knowledge you get, and then when the storm arrives and it's not as significant, people may say, I suppose the point of that. So there is a tendency, I suppose, for people to become over-alarmed by repeated warnings. But we're better off being warned in advance than not being warned, I think. Yeah, because there was some criticism at the time. I, I don't know was the Thornish was speaking out about it when the weather alerts came in and we had schools closed when it was, say, on a, an orange alert, but it was going to be a yellow alert by the morning um, around those statuses in place and whether or not, you know, they, they led to closures where otherwise there needn't be. Yeah, well, I think um, just to echo the, the, uh, the sentiments that Jim expressed there, there was a fatality as a result of one of these storms and we need to acknowledge that and obviously offer our condolences uh, to, to, the, to the family there. And also our thanks to all of the people who work in our county councils right, right across the country who are going out there when we shouldn't be going out and, and, and who are doing that work. And, they, they're, and they're still in the ESB crews and everybody else are going to be working really hard to get those to get those done. But I think sometimes there is a case that you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. You know, I think it, we're wise to be cautious but I do think that communication is absolutely key I think the the coloured warnings are very very helpful and I think that where there is a marginal call you know where it's in well we're, we're red but we're only red till eight o'clock that I think you know maybe there, there there can be a little bit more done to just explain to people exactly what that means I think that work you know can be ongoing I'm not a massive fan I have to tell you of naming the storms I think that makes you just a little bit immune to them and the, what, what happens as a result uh, of them but I mean I'm not hostile to it either I, I, I think on balance we should probably number them that would that would seem to make sense to me but I do think you know, we are becoming a lot more weather conscious, a lot more weather aware. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's probably a very good but thing. It's the big thing, isn't it, that we're becoming weather aware. Like, there's so much talk about climate change. When, mm -hmm. You know, we could go on about the, 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 the plans that are in place or, or, or our plans for coping with that. But certainly, weather has very much come to the fore now and linking events such as these with our changing climate on our planet, Aoife. Yeah, and I would say that, that we don't even use the term climate change anymore because it is a climate emergency. And, you know, people, environmental campaigners have been saying for a long time that Ireland's uh, environmental plans cannot be just building higher and higher flood walls. That's not going to work anymore. And we have seen big changes. You know, the carbon budget that the government have brought in, This does the government does seem to be putting climate uh, very far further than any other government had done before. Whether it's going to be enough, I don't know, but we are a lot more conscious of the weather now. We are seeing storms and fatalities and everything else. So I think things like this only head home to people who think that the climate emergency is a faraway thing for them. When you start seeing these more these weather events more and more, I think it really drives home to people that we are in a climate emergency. Would you agree with that, Donald? I, I do agree with that, but I think there's going to be such difficult decisions to make up the line about how progress and economic uh, um, recovery and everything like that goes along with our, our um, requirements to, to uh, address climate change in a meaningful way. I mean, our, maybe those two goals or those two uh, paths are kind of a little bit opposed and, and how we navigate those, it's, it's going to be a very... And do you mean that, you know, making changes, you know, that will help the planet are going to essentially cost us money? In our yeah, pockets. completely. And, absolutely. and it's, it's, it's actually trying to, to, to win over people from that point of view. Exactly, because they like the abstract of it, but, but when it comes down to it and they have to sort of take the hit in their pocket, how are they going to feel about it? I mean, driving in, in a taxi, the taxi driver talking about like the, the incentives to go to an electric car, it, it's not really worth his while um, yet. And that's, that's how he judges the, the wisdom of the, of, the, of the measure, not in how it's going to sort of 
yeah. affect uh, the climate? Yeah, certainly, you know, weather does focus the mind on people about what we are doing, um, yeah. Jim, in this instance, and it's all about those climate goals and, and how, how they work for us as well, isn't it? Yeah, listen, they're not incompatible. Like, the greatest resource we have is wind energy. We just need to use it and avail of it. Like, the west coast of Ireland, if we can avail and of in, the wind... And invest that's more there. in it. Yeah, of course. And obviously, we're going through a stage now where we're trying to develop the infrastructure in order to capture that wind energy, trying to get floating windmills out in the west coast of Ireland. Once we perfect that infrastructure, once we get that level of research and expertise... Say that together, that's a long time coming. Well, it is a long we, time coming, but we're going to be on the planet that. for a long time coming, Claire, well, as well. So we have to think about ensuring we that we have a long-term resource of renewable energy. We can do that. And listen, Irish people love talking about the weather anyway. We've been talking about it for years before anyone was aware of a climate emergency. Do you think, though, that there is enough political drive there? You know, Sinn Féin have been accused as well, Louise, of maybe taking a back seat on this and not being as, you know, forthright about what we need to do. Um, in order to address the climate crisis? Well, I think one of the things we need to be very, very clear about uh, addressing the climate crisis is an absolute priority for Sinn Féin, 100% it is, but we need to be very, very conscious that, uh, you know, one person's carbon tax increase is another person's freezing cold house. So we need to look at where people are at. And when we talk about the weather, when I'm in my constituency clinics and I'm talking to people who, are, who want to come and see me, they're talking about the bills, they can't afford to feed their homes, they can't afford to heat their homes, and the government are talking about making uh, heating okay. your home and even we, more expensive. We know, we know there will be more from your party this week on that issue of the carbon tax, but that is it from us. And my thanks to the panel tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning, but from all the late team here, good night, take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.